Hello and welcome to Lit Pen, a Victoria Festival of Authors podcast, bringing you readings and workshops from the VFA's alumni authors. I'm Martin Bauman. On Lit Pen, you'll find authors from across Canada, but home for this festival is the West Coast, and the VFA's home is found on the traditional ancestral territories of the Lekwungen people, also known as the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. Before today's episode, we acknowledge the ancestors, hereditary leaders, and matriarchs, as well as the creators from these lands, and give thanks for the privilege of living, writing, and reading here. We're committed to serving as learners and listeners. On this week's podcast is Jack Wang, an alumnus of VFA 2020. Jack is the author of We Too Alone, published by House of Anansi in Canada, a book that's also made its way onto shelves in the US, the UK, and Australia and New Zealand. You'll hear more from it in this episode. It is fantastic. His work has been long-listed for Canada Reads and shortlisted for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize. He's also won the Denudic Lead Literary Award for Best Debut Collection in English. Jack has held fellowships and taught creative writing in England, Vancouver, and now in the Department of Writing at Ithaca College. He joins us from there. Hello everyone, my name is Jack Wang and you're listening to The Lit Pen, the Victoria Festival of Authors podcast. Thanks for joining me for this podcast on creating narrative tension in fiction. Before I launch into things, I'd like to read from the beginning of my novella, We Two Alone, the title story of my debut collection. We Two Alone. At the start of the final scene, in the middle of his speech to Cordelia, Leonard's mind went blank. One moment his mind was full, and the next it was empty like a lake instantly drained, and the feeling was eerie. He scoured his memory, expecting words to leap to his tongue, to rush back in, but none came. Suddenly the stage lights prickled, and his costume weighed on him like a lead apron. Leonard Shaw had waited a decade to play Lear. As the founder, director, and lead actor of the Asian-American Shakespeare Company, he alone decided what got put on every year. At a hale-looking 48, he was still too young for the role, but this was the company's 10th year, which called for a play with commemorative heft. Leonard had always been known for his memory. Just last year, playing Henry V, he'd been flawless, even in rehearsal. Famously, he never needed scripts for table work, just recited entire plays by heart. But this year was different. At the table read, he found himself stumbling, using the prompt book. In rehearsal, he snapped impatiently for cues. He and Emily had separated after 20 years, and the strain was taking its toll. He thought Lear would finally bring her out of obscurity, but she hadn't shown up for last night's opening, and he hadn't seen her tonight either. His mind was addled. But he feared it wasn't that, or not just that. Before she died, his mother had lost her memory. What had surprised him about her decline was not the forgetting, so much as the darkening of her mood, the sudden, improbable fits of rage. Once, when his parents were in town, he took them to a Japanese restaurant, a little hole in the wall in the Bowery. After he asked for a table, his mother decided she wanted to go somewhere else. 
When he said they ought to stay, the waitress had already set down menus. His mother began to yell, to hurl insults, until he and his father had no choice but to whisk her out. Now that same darkness was seeping into him. The first time they rehearsed the final act of Lear, the young man who played the captain, whose small but vital role was to show a range of feeling, as Edmund orders Lear and Cordelia to be executed. The young man had put on such a ridiculous pantomime that Leonard had lost it. Who are you, Marcel fucking Marceau? The young man had cowered in shame, the outburst so unlikely that Leonard had surprised even himself. When all this evidence began to mount, all he wanted was to make it through the run without going up on a line. When he made it through opening night, he was buoyed, and until a moment ago, a second clean performance had seemed within reach. But now he was looking at Sophie's shoe, Cordelia, baffled as to what came next. They were holding hands, and he felt a clasp of assurance, even as her eyes quickened from worry to pity to panic. As he turned to the shrouded darkness of the house, a tiny rental on West 45th Street, he had time to think that her stricken looks could be read as Cordelia's and his own befuddled ones as Lear's. He kept rooting around for the rest of the line, patting the high shelf in his mind where he swore he had left it. Nothing. Just as silence threatened to unnerve the audience, Edmund stepped forward and said, take them away, and everything else came rushing back. Afterward, Leonard passed Ryan Gushikin backstage. As soon as Ryan had rescued the moment, the lost lines had resurfaced. Only those thoroughly versed in the play would have missed them, and even then they might have been taken for deliberate excisions. So Ryan hadn't been wrong to cover. But Leonard could tell he expected thanks, with his usual air of conceit, all the more galling for having a basis in talent. Always these young Turks trying to show him up. He walked on. Later, outside the dressing rooms, Leonard ran into Sophie, who appeared to be waiting. Wow, that was close, she said, trying to forge intimacy out of near disaster. When he said nothing, she glanced off, then snuck a look. Want to go for a drink? Sophie was a slender, open-faced girl from Saratoga Springs, seduced by her first stint in the city. Throughout rehearsals, he had felt an honest affection for her, this girl who was indeed young enough to be his daughter. Didn't we have enough last night, he asked, thinking of all the drinks he had bought for the cast and crew, as well as his father, who had come, however torpidly, for opening night. Maybe that's what did me in. Just one, then. There had been a time when a nightcap and whatever else with a fresh-faced ingenue would have been precisely the thing, but all he could think of now was Emily. Sorry, can't, not tonight. Her eyes glazed with hurt. Some other time. Okay, she sniffed. Some other time. Losing his mind to Lear. What a fucking cliche. This was the thought that possessed him as he rumbled through sweaty catacombs all the way up to Washington Heights. There were five more shows to get through in the week-long run, so he riffled through his lines, more than 700. But as far as he could tell, they were all still there including the ones he'd forgotten, and it struck him anew the sheer sorcery of memory. By the time he reached his apartment, he felt better. Maybe he was stressed. Maybe it was the drinking. Even if he was destined to become his mother, he should have had another decade. So maybe he wasn't losing his mind just yet.
After dropping his keys in the bowl by the door, he sat in the dark, taking in his narrow slice of the river. For years, he and Emily had let one of the itinerant actors crash on their couch for the show's duration. But this year, without Emily to play house mom, he couldn't be bothered. Without the usual company, he felt her absence all the more. Six months ago, in this very room, the two of them had staged their own final scene. She was done, she said. Done with the city, done with the dream. She was 42 years old. If it hadn't happened by now, it was never going to happen. It wasn't a question of talent, whether she had it or not. Some element of timing or karma or grace had passed her by. And she was tired, sick and tired of everything. It wasn't that Leonard couldn't understand. He was just as tired of cattle calls, bit parts, standby, rejection. Tired of his father, a physicist at Harvard, asking, so where's your Oscar? But he couldn't bring himself to quit now that the company had a toehold in the city. Sooner or later, someone would see him and everything would come to pass. The late bloom, it was still possible. Why can't you let it go, she asked. Sometimes he wanted to. He could easily imagine the pleasures of a regular job and a regular paycheck, a healthy balance in his 401k, and evenings and weekends to himself. As a teenager, he had whiled away entire weekends just watching TV and napping, and he longed to be that free again from the exigence of time, the constant need to make use of it, and the feeling of running out. But walking away would mean his life had been a mistake, and he wasn't ready to admit that. But she was. By saying she wanted to quit, wanted them to quit, she was saying she no longer believed in either of them. So that's the beginning of We Too Alone. By the way, the phrase We Too Alone comes from King Lear, specifically the scene in which Lear and Cordelia reconcile, when Lear says, We Too Alone will sing like birds in the cage. So now I'm going to turn to the topic of today's podcast, which is creating narrative tension in fiction, especially at the beginning of stories. And this will lead to a guided exercise to get you going with your own fiction. Before I start, let me just say that this session isn't about how all stories work, or how I think all stories ought to work, but rather about how I like to think about stories and how most stories tend to work. I think every story should answer two implicit questions. The first question is, why now? There's no story of any length that can capture the entirety of an individual's consciousness from birth to death. So every story works by synecdoche. The part has to represent the whole. So the reader wonders why this part and not some other part of the character's life. Why now? So that's one implicit question. The other implicit question is, what's at stake? Every story you compose and try to share with others has to answer a ruthless question, which is, so what? Another version of that question is, who cares? We've all had someone tell us about some strange dream they've had, right? And it's really interesting to them, but it might not be that interesting to us. So every story has to meet that threshold of interest. So what? Who cares? In other words, why does this story matter and why should I pay attention? I think the answers to these questions lie in two kinds of tension. We often hear that stories are about conflict and tension, but I think it helps to delineate those a little more. In his book, The Storytelling Animal, Jonathan Gottschall says, there's a universal grammar for story. 
If you look at all human stories across time and space, and you boil them down to their essence, to their most basic and constituent parts, you get a grammar. And that grammar is this, character plus predicament plus attempted extrication. That's what a story is, character plus predicament plus attempted extrication. So stories are about predicaments. Stories are about problems. But there are different kinds of predicaments, predicaments that are in the present, in the here and now, immediate problems that characters encounter. I like to think of as the acute tensions of a story. But anytime a human being encounters an immediate problem in the here and now, they have, of course, already lived a substantial life, and they've experienced many problems, any number of which are ongoing. I like to think of these long-standing tensions that arise from the past as chronic tensions. Stories, then, are about the intersection of problems in the present with problems in the past. That is, about the interplay of acute tensions and chronic tensions. To review quickly, acute tensions, as the term suggests, are immediate tensions. They're about predicament in the present, and what they do is disrupt the habitual, the status quo of the character's life. Stories are about when out-of-the-ordinary things happen, not just about what happens all the time. So it's a disruption to the status quo. The emphasis tends to be on incident, event, and action, what we broadly refer to as plot. And this tension helps to answer the question, why now? Chronic tensions, on the other hand, are long-standing tensions, as the term suggests. It's primarily about predicament in the past, and these problems have already become habitual or status quo. They're ongoing problems in the character's life that tend to emphasize character and help to answer the question, what's at stake? If we were talking in very broad terms about movies, a movie with a lot of acute tension would feel more like a Hollywood action movie because the emphasis is on predicament in the present, on immediate action, maybe with relatively thin characters. And a movie with a lot of chronic tension would feel more like a European art house movie where there's a lot of angst and woe, but maybe not a lot going on. The movie might feel slow, like not much is happening. When you think about the balance of acute and chronic tensions in your stories, you are thinking in part about audience and genre. Convention may dictate how much acute and chronic tension is expected. For example, a thriller demands a certain amount of acute tension. When a thriller has more chronic tension than usual, we actually give it a different name. We call it a psychological thriller because it seems to have more characterization and chronic tension. So the balance you strike between acute and chronic tensions depends on the very kind of fiction you want to produce. There's no formula. It depends on the kind of fiction you want to create. I myself strive for what we would broadly call literary fiction, but I try to strike a healthy balance between acute and chronic tensions. I often turn up the dial on incident and event as a way of propelling my stories. Sometimes there's a perception that making people sit up on the edge of their seats in literary fiction is somehow gauche. But I think acute tension is a crucial means by which we hold the attention of our readers. Let's go back and take a look at the opening of We Two Alone. The first line is, the start of the final scene, in the middle of his speech to Cordelia, Leonard's mind went blank. So the story starts right away with a problem. It's an immediate problem in the present, so I would call it an acute tension. Because every story is by definition 
when something out of the ordinary happens. Every story opening is always in relation to the acute tension, which comes either right away, as it does here, or somewhere toward the beginning. In this case, the out of the ordinary thing is that Leonard has forgotten his lines in the middle of a performance, which answers the question, why now? But what's at stake? We understand that actors want to do well, but they forget their lines all the time. Maybe it's no big deal. We might sense that the stakes are a little higher for a Chinese-American actor playing King Lear. But as we read on, we also learn that Leonard's struggles with memory have been going on for a while, and that his mother suffered from some kind of dementia. In other words, the problems of memory are both immediate and long-standing, both acute and chronic. It's not just a question of whether Leonard will make it through this scene or this performance, but whether he'll suffer the same fate as his mother, which raises the stakes considerably, and hopefully this chronic tension makes the reader care more. Of course, in any life, there can be more than one long-standing problem. In this case, Leonard is also separated from his wife, Emily. On one hand, it might explain his problems with memory. Maybe he's just been under a lot of stress. On the other hand, it's a problem unto itself. In stories, acute and chronic tensions intersect, but aren't always one and the same. As we read on, we realize that the problems in their marriage are rooted in his continued pursuit of acting, despite many years of struggle. This attaches even greater stakes to his performing well, which, again, hopefully makes the reader care more. Besides answering the questions, why now and what's at stake, the acute and chronic tensions of a story pose new questions in the reader's mind. These are the story's dramatic questions. In the case of We Two Alone, one of the dramatic questions is, is Leonard losing his memory? In the short term, we know that he makes it through this performance relatively unscathed, but will he make it through the rest of the run? And will he also lose his memory at a young age like his mother? These are questions that will take the whole novella to answer. Another important dramatic question is, will Leonard reconcile with Emily? Again, this is a question that will take the whole novella to answer. In the short term, he's able to resist Sophie's apparent interests, but will that be true throughout? In other words, effective, acute and chronic tensions pose dramatic questions that the reader wants the answers to, and therefore reads on to find out. This is not to say, of course, that We Two Alone succeeds, but this is some of the thinking that went into the opening of the novella. Now on to the guided writing exercise. Often writers will establish both the acute and chronic tensions of a story in the very first sentence. They won't waste any time. Here's the first sentence of a story called Potluck from Brandon Taylor's collection, Filthy Animals. Lionel had been out of the hospital for only a few days when the potluck invitation came. So right away, the story answers the questions, why now? And what's at stake? Why now? Because Lionel has been invited to a potluck. That's the acute tension of the story. What's at stake? We're not entirely sure yet, but he's been in the hospital. We don't know why, but the fact that he's been out only a few days suggests the stay was consequential. That's the chronic tension. What's at stake, we sense, is his very well-being. Those are high stakes. So already, 
we begin to care. And notice this story has already posed dramatic questions that we want the answers to. What will happen at the potluck? And will Lionel be able to recover from whatever ails him? This kind of efficiency might seem the special purview of short story writers, but novelists have also been known to establish the acute and chronic tensions of a story in the very first sentence. Consider, for example, the first sentence of Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. In a city swollen by refugees, but still mostly at peace, or at least not yet openly at war, a young man met a young woman in a classroom and did not speak to her. Why now? A young man has met a young woman in a night class. That's the out of the ordinary thing, the acute tension of the story. What's the chronic tension? Well, there's some kind of unrest in the city that will soon become war. But presumably this unrest is being experienced by everyone. Remember, chronic tensions are rooted in character. What's the long-standing problem that's particular to this young man? Again, we're not entirely sure yet, but it's interesting that he meets this woman but doesn't speak to her. And this shyness, this reticence, begins to suggest a chronic tension rooted in what Flannery O'Connor called the mystery of personality. So the first part of this exercise is pretty straightforward. Write the opening sentence of a story that establishes both acute and chronic tensions. Because it probably won't take long, you can write any number of sentences. You're welcome, of course, to pause the podcast at any point in the exercise and come back when you're done. When you have a sentence you're interested in, you can keep going, of course, if something catches fire. But for the purposes of this exercise, I'd like you to identify the acute and chronic tensions in the sentence. Then write a longer story opening that establishes the acute tension in greater detail first before introducing the chronic tension. Let me give you an example. This is the first paragraph of Jhumpa Lahiri's short story, A Temporary Matter, the first story in her collection, Interpreter of Maladies. The notice informed them that it was a temporary matter. For five days, their electricity would be cut off for one hour, beginning at 8 p.m. A line had gone down in the last snowstorm, and repairmen were going to take advantage of the milder evenings to set it right. The work would affect only the houses on the quiet tree-lined street within walking distance of a row of brick-faced stores and a trolley stop where Shoba and Shukumar had lived for three years. This is a story that begins with acute tension. The power is going to be cut for an hour every day for five days, which answers the question, why now? This may not seem like high drama, but it's the out of the ordinary thing. But what's at stake? At this point, we don't even know who Shoba and Shukumar are. Are they roommates, brother and sister, husband and wife? We don't know yet. But because stories are about the interplay of acute and chronic tensions, we're not surprised when we soon learn that these two people have a long-standing problem. Six months ago, in September, Shukumar was at an academic conference in Baltimore when Shoba went into labor, three weeks before her due date. When he returned to Boston, it was over. The baby had been born dead. Again, chronic tensions help us understand what's at stake. Why does the power outage matter? Because the power might be going out in this marriage. 
In this case, the story starts with the acute tension followed by the chronic tension. I'd like you to try that with your story opening. Again, feel free to pause and come back. Once you've done that, I'd like you to try another iteration of your story opening. This time, start with the chronic tension, the status quo soon to be interrupted, then introduce the acute tension. Here's an example of a story that introduces the chronic tension first, Our Lady of Paris by Daniel Moynouden, from his collection In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. So Hale and Helen had begun dating two years earlier at Yale, where she was an undergraduate and he at the law school. After graduating the previous summer, he had returned to his home in Pakistan while she completed her senior year. They had agreed to put the question of their future in abeyance until she finished school. Not the question of whether they would be together, but of how, in Pakistan, New York, or somewhere else. So Hale had vaguely committed himself to joining his father's sprawling business, a sugar mill, farmlands, and much else. The degree had been a way to put off this step. Okay, so we can tell from some of the temporal cues two years earlier, the previous summer, that these are long-standing problems between Sohail and Helen, the question of where to live and how to be together. There's also another chronic tension, which is Sohail's apparent inability to commit to his father's business, which may reflect a larger inability to commit. All of this is interesting, but the question is, why now? Why plunge into the lives of these characters at this point? What is the out-of-the-ordinary thing that's going to animate this static situation? This is what we're told in the next paragraph. When he announced to his mother that he would be going to Paris for Christmas to meet Helen, she pursed her lips but said nothing. So why does all of this matter now? Because Sohail is going to Paris to meet Helen. This story starts with chronic tension, then introduces the acute tension. I'd like you to try doing the same with your story opening. This will likely involve more than simply switching your paragraphs around. Which version of the story seems more effective? Starting with the out of the ordinary thing right away or establishing the status quo that's soon going to be interrupted? Of course, it's also possible to establish acute and chronic tension simultaneously, just as you can introduce both in a single sentence you can introduce both in a single paragraph. So that's another variation you can try, elaborating on both at once. Writing a story is largely about pursuing the acute and chronic tensions you establish at the beginning to their natural ends, whether in a short story or a novel. For example, a temporary matter poses two important dramatic questions. What's going to happen each night when the power goes out and will Shoba and Shukumar's marriage survive the death of their child? If a story doesn't answer its own dramatic questions, a reader is likely to feel unsatisfied. Similarly, Our Lady of Paris poses two important dramatic questions. What's going to happen in Paris, by the way, so Hale's parents decide to tag along, which we suspect can't be good, and what will become of Sohail and Helen? Stories end when they resolve their own acute and chronic tensions, usually in one fell swoop. I hope this podcast has helped you think more precisely about tension in fiction. 
And I hope the exercise has given you some different strategies for establishing acute and chronic tensions at the beginning of a story and giving you a jump on a new story that you're excited about. Thanks so much for joining me, wherever you are, and good luck with your writing. This episode of Lit Pen was produced by Laura Trunke and me, Martin Bauman. The music for the show is by Leanne Dunick. And don't let this be the end. Head on over to our Facebook group and join in this week's writing exercise. You can find that link in the episode's description. You can also see what other writers have come up with. Until then, happy writing. Happy writing.